High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a triumph of the Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Jean and Jane. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free, or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? This is the last episode of Jean and Jane. In this episode, we will run out of story to tell about Jean Seberg. We could keep this series going for a year and not run out of stories to tell about Jane Fonda. But in keeping with the concept, we will fade out of her life at around the same point in history that Jean faded away. The structure of this episode will be as follows. We'll rejoin Jane where we left her in the last episode, in the middle of her Hollywood comeback. Then, we'll skip over to Jean in Paris, struggling to work and to live, and to keep her head above the water of her mental, emotional, and substance abuse problems. Then, we'll come back to Jane, 
and conclude her story in Reagan America, a new world for which Jane Fonda was, perhaps surprisingly, prepared to fit right in. Join us, won't you, for the conclusion of Jean and Jane. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. After making Coming Home, but before it had come out, Jane signed on to co-star in and co-produce The China Syndrome, a cautionary tale about nuclear power that was scheduled to be Sherry Lansing's first project as the head of Columbia, the studio that had signed a post-Preminger Gene Seberg nearly 20 years earlier. Another actor-producer on The China Syndrome was Michael Douglas, who had just won the Best Picture Oscar for producing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Jane took Douglas and screenwriter Michael Gray, who was slated to direct the movie, out to dinner at El Coyote, the Mexican restaurant on Beverly Boulevard, where Sharon Tate ate her last meal, to have an important pre-production conversation. Michael, she said, fixing her eyes on Gray, I'm 40 years old and hard to light. This was Jane's way of saying, that she wouldn't let a screenwriter with no directing experience direct this movie. He was replaced by Jim Bridges. The production was not trouble-free. Jane was not happy with the way the script ended, and when Gray wouldn't write a new ending for her under the table, Jane had to improvise the film's closing monologue. This was nothing compared to what the cast and crew encountered Shooting in a real power plant, where according to star Jack Lemmon, the plant's real workers heckled Jane for being a, quote, commie bitch. And one dropped a wrench from 20 feet above her head. It didn't hit her, 
But if it would have, it would have cracked open Jane's skull. China Syndrome was another huge hit. Its relevancy and popularity was goosed by the Three Mile Island nuclear meltdown, which occurred almost simultaneously with the movie's release. And now, Jane Fonda, who couldn't get a job in Hollywood five years earlier, was commanding a salary of a million dollars a movie. While China Syndrome was still in theaters, Jane and Tom went on a speaking tour on which nuclear responsibility was their key issue. The crowds on this tour were full of Jane's fans, seeking autographs. The crowds were also peppered with protesters, mostly American Legion members, holding signs saying things like, Hanoi Jane, go home. This sentiment against Fonda was no longer mainstream, but it was not going away. Around this time, Raja Vadim, newly divorced from his latest wife, moved from France to Santa Monica so that he and Jane could co-parent their daughter Vanessa. Despite Jane's career resurgence, Tom Hayden still wouldn't let her hire help around the house or even use modern conveniences like washing machines to help quicken the household chores. Jane began secretly going to Vadim's modest house to do laundry. If you're wondering why Jane continued to stay with Tom Hayden at this point, here's an interesting thought that Jane had later. She said, Tom often made me feel stupid and superficial, and my dad had made me feel that way too. While Tom Hayden was setting domestic rules for his wife and she was pretending to obey them, Coming Home opened in U.S. movie theaters and slowly but steadily started building a box office gross that would amount to many multiples of its budget. This was despite almost no promotion from the studio, United Artists, whose head of marketing hated the film and believed it was quote-unquote anti-American. The film debuted internationally at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1978 to a rapturous reception. The following spring, Coming Home was nominated for eight Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director for Hal Ashby, Best Actor for John Voight, Best Supporting Actor for Bruce Dern, Best Screenplay for Nancy Dowd, Waldo Salt, and Robert C. Jones, three writers who had never worked together, and Best Actress for Jane. Voight won, the three writers won, and Jane won. Jane gave her acceptance speech in American Sign Language. But this was hardly the controversy of the night. Vanity Fair would later describe the 1979 Oscar ceremony as the Vietnam Oscars. Because Coming Home's major competition that night was Michael Cimino's epic The Deer Hunter, a film that was perceived by many to proceed from the same point of view as right-wing propaganda valorizing its white male American characters for exterminating the Vietnamese menace. This was a perception that Jane shared, despite the fact that she hadn't seen the movie. Vietnam Veterans Against the War, the group to which Jane had devoted herself while filming Clute, protested the deer hunter outside the theater where the Oscars were held, holding up signs with slogans like, 
No Oscars for Racism. The Academy vote, which was of course already counted by the time the protesters showed up, did not agree. The Deer Hunter won Best Director and Best Picture. Jane Fonda was pissed, and would later say in interviews that her film was quote-unquote better than Chimino's quote-unquote racist Best Picture winner. But as of 2008, Jane still hadn't seen Chimino's movie. When Jean Seberg married Dennis Barry, she was riding high on the euphoria of a new relationship, one that seemed to promise a new wave of her career, as Barry was enthusiastic about using Jean as a muse. Two years into their marriage, though, Barry had yet to make a film, and in general, Jean was losing hope. This was the Jean Seberg encountered by filmmaker Philippe Garel, who met Barry in Paris and began visiting the couple's apartment, which had become a kind of salon for local artists and cineasts. In 1974, Garel found himself drawn to Jean, even though she was in less than luminous shape, and he told her he wanted to make a movie with her. That movie, called The High Solitudes, was restored and released in New York cinemas for the first time in 2016, so there's more writing about it than any of Jean's other European films of the 1970s, even though this movie itself is probably the most experimental that Jean ever appeared in. Philippe Garel is sometimes lumped in with the French New Wave filmmakers, but it's more accurate to describe him as part of the first generation of French filmmakers inspired by the likes of Godard. By the time he met Jean, Garel had made many experimental movies but none of them had been seen internationally. He was in a relationship with the singer Nico, through whom he had met Andy Warhol. The High Solitudes, in which Nico would also appear, would resemble Warhol's screen tests. It consists of documentary-style shots of Seberg, Nico, and two other performers, apparently just being. It's silent, and there's no narrative, but many viewers have imposed onto it the story of Jean Seberg's decline. She appears on screen slightly puffy, sometimes shedding tears. At times, she looks like a zombie. At other times, you can see a sparkle of something behind her eyes. And a tension, as if she wants to engage with the camera in a way that she used to be able to do. But it's too painful. Garel collaborated with his performers. One day, while they were shooting in Jean's apartment, Garel asked Jean what she wanted to do. She told him that she wanted to shoot a suicide scene. She'd swallow a bunch of pills, and then Tina Oman, another actress in the film, would come in and save her at the last moment. They started shooting. Jean started swallowing pills and showing the effects. Suddenly, Garel got a horrible feeling that Jean was not gulping down aspirin as planned, but instead, actual sleeping pills. He called cut. Mad, Jean shouted. You've loused up my big scene. She had been taking aspirin, but the way she performed the suicide attempt was too convincing. 
One night after they made the film, Garel came over to her apartment for drinks. Jean had too many drinks. When Garel got up to leave, she begged him to stay for one more glass. When he demurred and began to leave anyway, she smashed her glass and slit her wrist. Barry and Garel were able to get a doctor to come immediately, and he bandaged Jean in time. But while they were waiting, Garel held an improvised tourniquet around Jean's arm as she wailed, Let me go. I want to die. Let me go. I want to die. After that, Jean returned to the mental health clinic for a while. And after that, with Barry's encouragement, Jean directed and starred in a short film called The Ballad of the Kid, which featured a fantasy encounter between a Billy the Kid-style outlaw and a Jean Harlow-esque bombshell star. I haven't been able to find this movie anywhere through legal means, but actor Jean-Francois Ferriol, who conceived of the movie with Jean and played the kid, described it as, quote, something between a Bob Dylan song and a science fiction story. Jean's directorial debut drew the attention of the American media, who pounced on the novel idea of Jean Seberg, Otto Preminger's victim, sitting in the director's chair as if she was a precocious child playing pretend. The New York Times sent a reporter to her apartment, and he wrote a profile that began with the sentence, Jean Seberg is a living argument against winning a Hollywood talent search. But Jean was able to get in a few good lines, defending her move behind the camera, and what she described as a self-imposed exile from Hollywood. Every time I've gone back there to do a film, I've been miss-submissive. I've let things be done to me, she said, conjuring up the memory of regrettable productions such as A Fine Madness. She wasn't eager to return to the scene of the crime. Something in me is not equipped to be in America and play those games, selling yourself over martinis, being charming and gay and bright, she said. It's not worth the fight. They always transform you into everything you aren't. Right now, America seems farther away to me than Singapore. She also spoke pessimistically about her current marriage. I'm aware there will come a time when Dennis will move on, though it might be me instead. I used to believe in fairy tales, but part of me has become more realistic. In the last years of their relationship, Roman Gary had been more of a father to Jean than a lover, and Dennis found that Jean sometimes still confused a husband for a caretaker. She went to Rome to film a marriage melodrama called White Horses of Summer, in which the climax of the movie involves the self-absorbed couple reuniting when their little boy has a fatal accident. Filming the scene in which her character waits outside her son's hospital room while his life hangs in the balance was extremely traumatic for Jean. Dennis Barry flew to Rome when Jean told him that she and another actor on the film were involved in a conspiracy to smuggle Black Panther leader Huey Newton, who had been accused of murder, out of the U.S. Dennis quickly realized that Jean wasn't involved with Newton at all. She had made it all up, 
retreating into a fantasy world when she couldn't handle her day-to-day reality. After that movie, it was back into treatment, which meant new prescriptions for new pills, which left her dazed and bloated. Barry's movie The Great Delirium was finally scheduled to go into production at the end of 1974, with Jean barely out of her latest clinic. It was not a happy set. In addition to Jean's problems, Barry was not an experienced director, and he lost the confidence of the cast, which included Isabelle Huppert. Huppert had recently worked with Otto Preminger on the film Rosebud, and she and Jean started calling Dennis Little Otto behind his back. The movie was not a success. But somehow, Jean and Dennis's marriage survived, at least for a little while longer. Then, in early 1976, a reporter named Narda Zacchino, who was investigating the abuses of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI for the LA Times, called Jean in Paris. Zacchino had received a tip about the FBI's campaign against Jean. Four years after Hoover's death, all kinds of clandestine stuff was starting to come out. Zacchino needed Jean's permission in order to obtain her actual FBI files. Jean told the reporter that she had not known for sure that the FBI had been surveilling her and had orchestrated the media items about her baby, but that she had suspected as much. But she didn't want to help uncover the proof. She had already been through too much. A few months later, Jean received a letter from the U.S. Department of Justice confirming that she had been a target of the COINTELPRO investigation. At the same time, the Senate Select Committee issued a report on misconduct at the FBI, which confirmed the agency's role in publicizing the rumor that Jean's baby was fathered by a black radical. In November of 1976, the FBI sent Jean her entire file. For a while, Jean toyed with using the files as an aid in writing her autobiography. She wrote the first chapter of her story, and Dennis Barry thought it was beautiful. But she did not continue. She asked Gary to hold on to her files for safekeeping. Jean Seberg's last film was an adaptation of Ibsen's The Wild Duck, in which she appeared opposite German actor Bruno Ganz. Jean had a small part. She had gained quite a bit of weight. And when people close to her gently asked her about her drinking, she would make light of it. I'm not an alcoholic, she'd say. I just have a drinking problem. That May, Jean and Dennis separated. A few weeks later, he got a call from a Spanish actor, an old boyfriend of Jean's. Jean was losing it in a hotel room in Madrid, the actor said. Dennis rushed there and found Jean in a full-on state of delusion. She was covered with cigarette burns, which she blamed on, quote-unquote, them, although it was clear she had done it herself. Dennis took her back to Paris and checked her into a high-security sanitarium, where Jean was put on lithium, which made her gain more weight. At this point, she began to retreat. She was extremely embarrassed by the way she now looked. If friends dropped by her apartment, 
She would only talk to them through her closed door. And yet, she'd still go out to bars and sometimes have brief affairs with men that she met while out drinking. She didn't want the intimacy of being around people who really knew her, but she sought the affirmation of strangers. Eventually, she asked Dennis Barry to leave her for good, and he moved to Los Angeles. She then collected a coterie of hangers-on who would drink with her, sleep with her, and help her spend what little money she still had access to, much of which was an allowance that came from Gary. In the spring of 1977, Jean sought mental health treatment again, and at the latest clinic, they suggested she dry out from booze and pills and attempt to lose weight. Perhaps if she regained some self-confidence, she wouldn't be drawn to such self-destructive behavior. After six weeks on a protein shake diet, Jean looked like a version of her old self. One friend commented that from a distance, she looked 25. But up close, you could see the years and a hollowness behind the pretty facade. She now lived on cigarettes and coffee. At Eliza Minnelli concert, Jean had one beer and then collapsed. After that, she'd start telling people that she couldn't walk, that her leg was numb, but her friends suspected that whatever was wrong with her leg was in her head. Early 1979 brought more stays in more sanitariums. She insisted her leg was getting worse. Her mental health treatment was expensive, she didn't have any money, and Roman accused her of embellishing her problems for attention. When she'd leave a clinic, she'd have manic episodes. Bad check-writing her way through shopping sprees, and babbling about how the FBI was still watching her. In February 1979, she spoke to a reporter from the International Herald Tribune, the paper for which her character in Breathless had worked, and revealed what she had learned from her FBI files. She told the reporter that she was still under constant surveillance and harassment, and that she had recently been shot at in the street. She told the reporter she feared for her life. A stay in a state mental hospital followed that interview. Some friends wanted to move her to a less depressing place, but Jean couldn't afford it. In the spring of 1979, Jean went home to her apartment in Paris. She started hanging out at a Moroccan restaurant and bar in her neighborhood, where she had a brief affair with the owner. Then she met the owner's nephew, a man in his 20s named Ahmed Hazni. Hazni soon moved into Jean's apartment. He didn't allow her to drink or smoke, but other than that, no one believed this was a healthy relationship. Sometimes he beats me, Jean confessed to a friend, but I love him. Hazni was not working, and occasionally Jean would have to call friends to ask for money for food. Jean and Hosni had some kind of ceremony at which they exchanged vows, but Jean was still married to Dennis Barry, so it wasn't binding. Hosni then convinced Jean to sell her Paris apartment and many of her remaining belongings. He told her they would go to Barcelona and start a business. He kept all of the money that the apartment sale netted in cash 
in a briefcase. They did go to Spain together, but there, Jean left him. When she returned to Paris and tried to get her drafts of her memoirs and money back from Hosni, Jean got sucked back under his control. They moved into a studio apartment in the 6th, sort of between the Eiffel Tower and the Arc de Triomphe. One night in late August, Hosni and Jean went to the movies. The movie showing was Claire de Femme, directed by Costa Gavras and based on a novel by Ramon Gary. It starred Yves Montan and Romy Schneider as two strangers in marriages that have been crippled by sickness and death who find some temporary hope within one another. It was not the right choice for an escapist night at the cinema. At least, not for Jean. The following morning, Hosni called the police to inform them that Jean was missing. She remained missing for 10 days. Finally, Jean was found under a blanket in the backseat of her car, which was parked just around the corner from the apartment where they had been living. It appeared that she had gotten into her car, driven it to a place in plain sight where no one would think to look for her, and then climbed into the back seat, swallowed two bottles of sleeping pills, passed out, and never woke up. By the time her body was found, it was decomposed almost beyond recognition. She was 40. Her body had a lot of alcohol in it. Roman's prediction that she would become a drunk and kill herself by the time she was 40 came true. Two days later, Roman Gary gave a press conference at which he attacked suggestions that the movie based on his book had inspired Jean's suicide. He instead laid the blame elsewhere. Jean Seberg was destroyed by the FBI, he said, producing the files that Jean had asked him to hold on to for her. When an important American magazine published the rumor launched by the FBI, Jean became like a crazed woman, Gary insisted. She never got over the calumny, and that's why she lost her child at birth. Gary alleged that Jean had tried and failed to kill herself seven times, usually around the time of Nina's birth. This successful attempt had taken place a week after Nina would have turned nine. From 1961 to 1969, I lived night and day with a perfectly normal woman, Roman said. But after Nina's death, he said, she became psychotic. She was obsessed by this dead child. One year and three months later, on December 2nd, 1980, Roman Gary put a gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He left a note which read, in part, No connection to Jean Seberg. Lovers of broken hearts are kindly asked to look elsewhere. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When Jean Seberg was 40, she killed herself, succumbing to the dark paranoia that may have become too much to fight thanks to the FBI, but which she had been flirting with ever since Lilith. When Jane Fonda was 40, or somewhere around that time, she finally began to overcome her sickness that had been haunting her for decades, her eating disorder. I say somewhere around the age of 40 because I'm honestly not sure when it happened. Jane Fonda has lived so much of her life in public that while there is a diverse range of strong opinions about her, there are few disputed facts about her life. But one thing I found difficult to pin down is the point in her life when she ceased binging and purging. In her biography of Jane, which was written with some cooperation from Fonda, Patricia Bosworth writes that Jane had her bulimia under control by early 1974, at which point Jane would have been 36 years old. But in her own autobiography, Jane said she didn't overcome the eating disorder until she was in her 40s. Yet, without citing the date, she says she quit being bulimic about a year before she wrapped China Syndrome, which would have put the date at which she went cold turkey, as she put it, at some point in 1977, when Jane was probably 39, maybe 40. In more recent interviews, she's further complicated the timing. This is Jane in 2012, talking to Amanda de Cadenet about this issue. How many years did you suffer from bulimia? 25. I mean, that is a large chunk of your life. Hello. I mean, yeah. how... How, do you do you have you really recovered from that or yes. is that yeah well, I know I, I saw an article in the, in the New York Times Health Health Times issue a while back and it said you can't really recover from it and I know you can um, well what I did was not necessarily the best I was about forty six and I um, I stopped it was like a, the equivalent of a dry drunk a dry drunk means an alcoholic who's not drinking but isn't getting any treatment for the reasons that, why hard, brittle core, which is the addiction, was still there. After four years, I started the workout, and I began to heal through the workout. Um, Gloria Steinem said empowerment can begin in the muscles, and it's true. Here she says she went cold turkey when she was 46, and four years later, began the workout. As we'll see, Jane began doing the workout that she would call the workout when she was 40. Maybe she meant to say that she overcame the disorder when she was 36, 
which would make more sense. I don't bring this up because I'm trying to gotcha Jane Fonda. It's just that I want to try to be as accurate as possible, and it's interesting that this is one issue on which Jane herself has put out conflicting information. One thing that has remained consistent, though, is the credit she has given to the workout's transformational potential. While Jean Seberg, the child of the idyllic, middle-American, God-fearing small town, was losing her will to live, Jane Fonda, the survivor of childhood suicide, who had struggled with a potentially deadly eating disorder brought on in part by the body fascism of Hollywood, was creating a new life for herself as a lifestyle guru. For her next movie after China Syndrome, California Sweet, Jane would need to wear a bikini, a fact that struck fear in her heart when she fractured her foot. This meant that Jane would not be able to do the ballet workout that she had done every day of her non-pregnant life since she became a professional actress. At the recommendation of Henry Fonda's wife, Shirley, Jane visited an exercise studio in Century City called Body Design by Gilda, founded by a teacher named Gilda Marx. Jane soon became addicted to Marx's workout. Eventually, with Shirley's urging, Jane got the idea of opening her own workout studio. She hired an instructor from Marx's studio, Lenny Kasdan, to give her private lessons. Lenny's workout was not aerobic. Both Lenny and Jane smoked cigarettes and were not looking for a stressful cardio workout. Instead, they concentrated on moves for toning and strengthening muscles. Jane came up with a plan to open her own workout studio. And in 1979, she leased a space on Robertson Boulevard in Beverly Hills in which to house it. Jane wanted all of the proceeds to go to the nonprofit she and Hayden were still running. In setting it up this way, in a move she'd come to regret, Jane ended up cutting Lenny, on whose routines the entire Jane Fonda workout was based, out of the business. Like everything she had ever done, Jane Fonda threw herself into her new business venture. She would personally teach the 5 a.m. class, which cost attendees $5.50 per class, just like all the classes at the center. Workout devotees, adoring fans, and tourists alike would come specifically to hear Jane Fonda yell, Does it burn? If it doesn't burn, you're not doing it right. Jane was constantly doing press, allowing cameras into the workout studio and going on morning shows, from which she'd promise that the workout would change viewers' lives. Enough of them believed her that by 1980, her workout studios alone were bringing in $20,000 a month. Books and videos would follow. The original Jane Fonda workout, which compiled a 30-minute beginner's workout with a slightly longer advanced version, became the highest-selling VHS tape of all time. Fonda recently re-released this original workout for iTunes and streaming platforms, and this summer I've been using it as my main exercise method while traveling away from home. Just as a piece of cinema, the Jane Fonda workout is a minor masterpiece. It's beautifully shot, edited, and performed by Jane, who, as usual 
seems to be in her natural element operating at a level that would strike any other human being as unusually and unsustainably intense. The most impressive thing about her workout is not that she's an insanely flexible, unsweaty, not-at-all-out-of-breath master at it at age 44. The most impressive thing is that, through what are clearly multiple takes shot of multiple workout routines, Jane seems to never lose eye contact with the camera. It would be easy to write off Jane's 1980s incarnation as a tacit admission that her revolutionary guise, which had intentionally repelled the male gaze, had failed, that it was a return to her pre-liberation identity as a sex kitten capitalist. But this is reductive, for a couple of reasons. For one thing, the face for the 1980s that Jane presented on her workout videos was not a sudden about-face— Jane had been quote-unquote cleaning up her act since the day in 1972, just a couple of months after her return from Vietnam, when she helped Tom Hayden cut his hair. They had been together on a journey from the counterculture to the center of the culture, which hit a milestone in 1982 when Tom was first elected to public office, and continued throughout that decade as Jane began giving televised mea culpas defanging the image of her that lingered from the 1970s. Here she is, talking to Barbara Walters in 1985. Are you still haunted by the whole Hanoi Jane kind of feeling? Is that still there? I think that most people in this country uh, feel enough already. That was 15 years ago. Uh, Dues have been paid. Let's move on from there. I am not today what I was, although I, I do not apologize for my opposition to the war. I'm proud that I, uh, that I was against the war. I understand that some of the ways that I chose to express it uh, have been misunderstood. But, and you know, it's easy in hindsight to say, well, maybe I should have done it differently, but those were desperate times. You know, m- the media called me shrill, I was. I was new to activism. Um, the Vietnam War roused something in me that had not been roused, and I, instead of saying, look, I'm not an expert in this. I'm an actress. I had just finished Barbarella. Uh, I, I didn't have enough confidence in myself to say I, I'm a mother. I care very much about this. I'm learning as much as I can. Instead, I borrowed other people's rhetoric that didn't fit well in my mouth. These sorts of interviews, in which Jane presented herself as a wife and mother who had made youthful mistakes served as savvy misdirection away from the radical achievements Jane was still in the process of making. It's inarguable that the home video fitness industry didn't exist until Jane Fonda invented it, with the enormous success of her workout tapes. With her fluffy permed hair and perfectly fit body, she may have now been appealing to the male gaze, but she wasn't playing by men's rules here. She was creating a new industry based on appealing to women. And even if she was re-embracing something akin to the sex kitten image that men had liked in the 1960s, in 1982, a 40-something sex kitten was still pretty radical. Ultimately, Jane's reinvention as a fitness guru was absolutely a victory of commerce. 
But there was an art to it, too, and it was nothing if not political. She was sending women the message that by taking control of their bodies, by becoming physically strong, by taking 30 minutes a day for themselves, they could take control of their lives. This is a kind of feminism. It may not have looked the same as Jane's 1970s feminism, but because it wasn't on its surface offensive to men, it afforded her more power. At speaking engagements around this time, Jane would tease the crowds that her next movie would be a feminist revenge fantasy about rebellious secretaries. This movie would be 9 to 5, and it would be the biggest commercial success Jane had a hand in during this period. When Jane first had the idea for 9 to 5, she personally met with dozens of secretaries to hear their stories of gender imbalance in the workplace. And she hired a woman named Patricia Resnick, who had worked for Robert Altman, to go undercover as a corporate secretary in the name of research. Resnick would not be long for the project, which was always intended as a big studio film. Jane wasn't going for Altman-esque naturalism. 9 to 5 was intended as a feminist statement wrapped in an entirely commercial, wacky comedy package. As that package took shape, with Lily Tomlin as a no-bullshit office manager, and with singer and first-time actress Dolly Parton as a sweet bombshell at the mercy of her jerk boss, Jane's part, that of a woman forced into the workforce by a divorce, became the film's most recessive. Jane was the leading creative force behind the scenes on 9 to 5, but at this point in her career, it made more sense for her personal life to keep her drive for dominance behind the scenes. Tom Hayden had become increasingly threatened by and hostile towards his wife's celebrity. With one man in her life taking an increasingly antagonistic stance towards Jane, she threw herself into one last effort to fix her relationship with her father. Henry Fonda was in his mid-70s, and he had problems with his heart. Jane believed it was crazy that she had two Oscars and her father had none, and she figured it was now or never to try to correct that travesty. Jane had long wanted to make a movie with both her father and her brother, but when she read the Broadway play on Golden Pond, she knew it was perfect for her dad and that there might not be time to spare to wait for something that would suit the whole family to come along. Jane took a supporting role in the movie, which starred Henry as a taciturn old man who forms a bond with the stepson of the daughter with whom he's never been able to communicate. Jane would play the daughter. Catherine Hepburn would play her mother and his wife. If Jane was at all trepidatious about being parented on the set of this movie she was producing for her father, chances are she didn't expect the problem to come from Hepburn, who hovered over Jane like the critical mother that Jane, sadly, never had. At their first meeting, when Jane was begging Hepburn to do the film, the 73-year-old legend appraised Henry Fonda's daughter and had said, I don't like you. Once on the set, they became more friendly, but Hepburn's way of showing intimacy with the younger woman was by haranguing her with unsolicited advice on acting, marriage, and everything. Jane, of course, 
would have loved if Henry had taken such an interest in her. Instead, he remained at an emotional distance, even saying careless, cold things to her on set. After one incident, Hepburn comforted Jane. Please don't feel badly, she said. Your dad has no idea that his words hurt you. He didn't mean to. He's just like Spence. Jane and Henry had one big emotional scene together. Jane weeped and weeped throughout rehearsal and for the first few takes. And then, when director Mark Rydell moved in for a close-up, she found that her tears had totally dried up. Unable to organically cry without the aid of movie magic, Jane nonetheless added something real to the scene by reaching out and unexpectedly touching her father on the arm, an unscripted gesture that made Henry Fonda flinch, reflexively bringing his own hand to his face. Jane's last few movies had been hits, but On Golden Pond was the biggest hit of 1981. It was nominated for Oscars in all the major categories, but by the time the ceremony came around, Henry Fonda was too ill to attend. When he won the Best Actor prize that night, Jane accepted on his behalf. He would die less than six months later. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When running for state assembly in 1982, Tom Hayden used to joke that his district, quote, has the greatest divergence of incomes in the state, mine and my wife's. This discrepancy was at the heart of Jane and Tom's marital problems, as we'll see. But the gulf between the haves and have-nots, and particularly the kind of mania that seemed to be moving the haves to accelerate further and further away from the rest of the pack, would become one of the defining issues of the decade. Jane's next movie was an effort to give the same treatment to this climate of 1980s corporate greed that Clute had given to the paranoia state of the 1970s. Rollover would be directed by Alan Pecula. Unlike Clute, it would star Chris Christofferson as a banker who seduces Jane's rich widow in order to stave off his bank's collapse. The elements of a paranoiac romantic thriller were all there. But through rewrites demanded by the studio, a murder mystery was added to the beginning— and a plot based on shifting intrigue was consumed in the end by a full-on international economic catastrophe. 
It's true that for most of Rollover, you're not sure where the main character's loyalties lie, or what aspects of the story are supposed to have the greatest stakes. In other words, it was a 1970s movie made in, and about, a 1980s culture that, in every sense of the term, wanted things to be easier to consume. I think it's pretty great, and it's on iTunes and you should watch it. But when Rollover was released almost simultaneously to On Golden Pond, its box office take was considered embarrassing. Rollover brought Jane's stellar run of socially conscious blockbusters to an end. Jane blamed her producing partner, Bruce Gilbert, for the production having gone astray. Jane would part ways with Gilbert, and she wouldn't make another movie for three years, concentrating instead on the workout. Tom Hayden hated the success Jane was enjoying with the workout, even though the enormous proceeds of Jane's exercise brand were funneled directly into Tom's political organization until 1984, when Jane decided to separate the two entities. Hayden dealt with his frustrations by drinking more and having affairs. Jane stayed with him until December 1988, when Jane was turning 51, and Tom announced to her that he was in love with someone else. Hayden had been a member of the California State Assembly since 1982, running campaigns which Jane had supported with her time, her voice, and her money. When the marriage fell apart, Jane did too, for a while. Of course, she would come back, again and again, but we will save the rest of Jane Fonda's life and career for another day. Suffice it to say, Jane's ability to reinvent herself has known no bounds. As we've seen throughout this series, some people respond to challenges by acquiring the ability to be the person they need to be when they need to. Those people learn to erase the past when they have to, and to look relentlessly into the future. And some people can never manage that. They carry the past around with them like a scab that they can't stop picking until the wound has become diseased, and yet picking at it remains a weird source of comfort. And this is one reason why Jean Seberg's story ended when it did, and the end of Jane Fonda's story has yet to be written. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod and find us on Facebook and Instagram too. If you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to it there. 
it really helps other people find it. Of course, you can also find us at virtually any other place where you find podcasts. We will be back in a few months with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. We are all of us in the gutter. Some of us are looking at the stars. Look round the room. Life is unkind.